Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Chris Harvey of Wells Fargo your mistake for 2022? joins us now, the head of equity strategy. Your line, Chris, the high volume cathartic puke we were waiting for. Chris, what's that? <laughs> well, first off, that's my scientific term. And, and typically what we see at the end of the sell-off is we see volume increase. We see money move from the weaker hands to the stronger hands. And that's exactly what we saw yesterday. Yesterday, there were probably three things that we wanted to see and three things that we got. The VIX at 39 or close to 39, uh, we don't think that's sustainable based on the fundamentals. Uh, two, you had small caps outperform large. That's typically what you see when you, you have a very aggressive hedge fund degrossing or the end of a very hedge fund, uh, aggressive hedge fund degrossing. And the last thing is, again, as you, you point out so eloquently, that cathartic puke that we needed, that, that capitulation of those weaker hands, and now we can move forward. And what that's exactly what, what we got. What about the catharsis across the x-axis? We seem to be doing catharsis in a three-hour span. I don't buy that. If you go back to John Maggie, 1940. 42 in a slower, maybe 44 in a slower time. Catharsis took a couple days, even a week. Is the new catharsis minutes? Tom, you know, everything happens fast enough nowadays. So can we have more of a sell-off? Sure, we can. But yesterday was one heck of a sell-off. I think every time I looked down, we were gapping lower. Um, if you looked at some of the stories, we did hear about some hedge fund liquidation. We did hear about margin calls. We did hear about some capitulation on the retail side. And, and I guess, as, as we were saying before, everything just happens a bit quicker nowadays. Okay, well, it's quicker nowadays. I'll go with that. So do you, do you step in and buy this morning? What does UBS suggest someone do with not ample cash, but someone managing retail or institutional portfolio Wells that Fargo, does Tom. have cash on board? Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo. Uh, please, it's 1-1 one, one this morning already. I can't, I can't, we call this a draw and go home. So Lisa did the rest of the show without us, <laughs> which, let's face it, is what people have been waiting for for the last Chris, few years. Just, what are you buying? <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't know what Wells... Uh, I mean, I don't know what you... <laughs> Wells Fargo. <laughs> wow, this has gone off the rails real fast. Um, Welcome so to the show. Anyway, back to our show. We think you should be buying here. Um, yesterday, midday, we wanted to get a note out. I couldn't do it quick enough. And we were looking for a 10% pullback. We were looking for this yep. bend, not break mentality to crack. It did. We checked those boxes. As we talked about, we, we got good information on the VIX, on small caps, uh, as well as our, our volume or our cathartic puke. And, and now what we want people to do is we want them to buy our higher COVID beta portfolio. We want them to buy the reopening trade. Fundamentals are improving. Uh, the COVID wave is coming down. And, and what we're seeing is a, a pretty good opportunity, we think, to get more aggressive and, and play the economy for now. We think the economy is fine. We think the Fed is doing a good job. And we think the probability of stagflation has diminished greatly as the Fed, as the curve is flattened, as confidence in the Fed has, has come back. Chris, is there high-frequency data that you're looking at that really edifies this view that we're moving past the Omicron wave and back to this solid growth picture that people believed in so strongly maybe three weeks ago? Um, High-frequency data, we, we look at the COVID cases every day. We look at them on a state-by-state basis. We look at them on a country basis. And, and what, what you expected to see was a sharp runoff, excuse me, a sharp run-up and, and a pretty quick or a pretty quick decay. 
right? We're seeing that. As far as the, the high-frequency economic data, one of the things that we said coming into the year is we thought the consumer needed to normalize. We're beginning to see that. Um, you've seen a lot of disruption on the retail side with people not being able to come into work. I mean, this weekend I tried to go to the library with my son, and, and the library was closed, right? We'll get through that. And now, more importantly, what we're looking at is consumer balance sheets. Consumer balance sheets are quite strong, and that's a very good sign. So we'll have a hiccup. We'll have some you know, back and forth. But at the end of the day, with consumer spending being strong, with still a lot of pent-up demand on the leisure and the travel side and on the uh, services spend side, that's where we think people are going to spend their money. I think that's where the real opportunity is. Do you think we should leave this conversation off the podcast? I don't think this is going to work so well on the podcast a little bit later. Chris oh, no, Harvey really, of Wells Fargo. Hey, Chris, got to catch up, buddy. As always, always a pleasure. Chris, thank always you, a mate. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glenn Hubbard, you go back to our best intentions. On page 122, you've got JFK before assassination with great intentions, but LBJ could not implement the trade assistance. He couldn't build the bridge that JFK tried to build. That's just one example. Are we going to repeat a fractured American history? Well, I don't think we have to. You know, the growth we celebrate always is the heads of a coin whose tails is disruption. And disruption uh, is a demand for adaptation. And the supply can either be walls of protection or bridges like Kennedy tried to do with trade adjustment assistance. Problem is, it's too small. In U.S. history, though, we've done it right. Lincoln did it with land-grant colleges. FDR did it with the GI Bill. It's time to think bigger again. That's really the theme of the book. It's really about Adam Smith. A delicate call, maybe about Donald Trump as well. A delicate question, Dean Hubbard. Can the Republican Party get beyond Trump economics and Trump certitude as defined by the wall and the bridge you'd like to build? I think both parties can get behind bridge ideas because they're about two simple points. One is preparing people for the world that is and will be. And the other is reconnecting people who get disconnected from an economy in flux. That's something that doesn't have a Republican or a Democrat flavor to it. And in the past, people uh, as disparate as uh, former House Speaker Paul Ryan and President Obama have had many of the ideas I talk about in the book. One thing that uh, is sort of uh, tying the hands of certainly both Republicans and Democrats right now in spending more money is the inflationary backdrop. How do you incur more debt at a time when there does seem to be a concern? How do you think the Federal Reserve should handle it at the meeting that begins today? Well, I think most of the programs that I advocate are actually fairly small in spending. That's the shocking political thing. And I describe ways in which we could pay for it. From the Fed's perspective, I think the Fed is behind the curve. It has acknowledged that, in a sense, it is behind the curve and is trying to catch up. The key question is not to add the demand while supply constraints bind. I think the Fed now gets that. The key will be communication and what Wall Street thinks then about stocks and what the economy thinks about near-term growth prospects. How high can rates go before it becomes a real problem, given how much debt's been incurred, not only by corporations, but by the United States? Well, actually not that high. You know, think about it. Even if you shifted the entire term structure of interest rates up by 200 basis points, which is hardly super high, you would have real problems uh, in the federal budget. I think the Fed is independent. It will do what it takes to, to bring inflation under control. 
but it is a warning to officialdom in Washington that we have to take the federal budget more seriously than we have. Glenn, the moment that we're in, as defined by Ira Jersey at Bloomberg Intelligence, is a balancing of a rate policy and a balance sheet unwind. Let's call it QT, which is not an original thought. Are you optimistic that we can do original economics? I think it's harder than people think. It's certainly uh, academically quite possible. You can do the math and try to count in equivalent rate hikes what QT would be. The problem is QT is not just the opposite of QE. There are a lot of asymmetries built in that we don't have experience with. I think the Fed is taking this very, very carefully. Does that extend the x-axis? I mean, we had this conversation earlier with the great Claudia Sam of Michigan talking about Michael Woodford and what we all learned in interest in prices. Okay, great. But is a solution here for any central bank that the x-axis here is much longer than any of us presume and that they will take their time and wait for data? Well, I think the Fed will certainly wait for data. How much time the Fed has, of course, depends on inflation readings and the reason for those readings. You don't want to let inflation get ingrained into wage bargaining processes. So I I think the Fed could wind up moving perhaps even more rapidly than people think. Glenn, uh, Glenn Hubbard of Columbia, I am curious for the economics profession what the takeaway is after the Fed got inflation so wrong, and it wasn't just the Fed, it was pretty much everyone. How did it happen? I don't know that I would call it pretty much everyone. I think a number of economists, I certainly put myself in that boat, said that we're adding to demand, both the Fed and frankly the government too, at a period when supply constraints are binding. So I, I think this was a policy error that need not have happened. Okay, so if you think this is a policy error that need not have happened, is it something that can be curtailed by aggressive Fed action, such as what's being priced into the market? Or do you think this has longer lasting sort of influences based on wages, based on rent prices and some of the other pressures? I do think the Fed can get this under control. It has all the tools and it has all the institutional incentives and independence to do that. Having said that, it's hard, meaning that You know, history isn't kind to the view that you could have this kind of Fed tightening without any kind of economic or financial hiccup. So the Fed is walking a tight loop. Glenn, did this Fed chair deserve a second term? I think so. I mean, I think Chair Powell uh, acted very vigorously in the coronavirus pandemic. I think the the bias would be toward keeping a Fed chair you think is is doing a good job absent some obvious alternative. So I, I think so. But the only person whose opinion counts there is the president. And ultimately, the president made the decision to give him a second term. The reason I asked the question is because for some people, he lost a lot of credibility with this inflation call. Are you saying, Glenn, in your comments to Lisa, that ultimately you can win that back and win that back quite quickly? You can, but it's not without cost. It would have been better had a policy error not been made. But yes, the Fed can win this battle, but I'm afraid we all in the economy are going to pay a cost. Well, let's talk about those costs, Glenn. How big do you think those costs will be? We have the discussion on this program daily. Some people say soft landing. Others say it's too late. Recession, inevitable. How large do you think the costs will be? I would say that the chances are better for a relatively soft landing if the Fed is clear in its communication and everybody understands what is happening. The risks would be if inflationary pressures move faster than the Fed thinks, and it has to move faster, and or there are bad reactions either in financial markets or, frankly, 
on the government budget. That's the tightrope I was referring to. But yes, the Fed can pull this off. So they should look through what's happening on the screens this morning, yesterday, through much of the start of this year, Glenn, with equities down and down hard again. Well, that, of course, is for the Fed to decide. I don't think the Fed should be in the business of putting a put on the stock market. The question is more, are Fed actions affecting financial stability or economic performance? Those are legitimate questions, and I think they're very much on the Fed's mind. Important comments, Glenn, as always, and really enjoy catching up with you, sir. Glenn Hubbard there of Columbia University. It was stunning 90 days ago to see GE announce a three-company breakup. It is far more stunning this morning to see General Electric really put some meat on the discussion. And the discussion is simple. They've got two divisions, two new companies, getting it done, including GE Aviation. And they've got another one, which they title Renewable Energy Power in Digital, where just simply it ain't happening. Claudia Sam is an uh, industrial analyst, senior fellow at Jane Family Institute and joins us this morning. <laughs> Claudia, GE is a metaphor for how everyone, including Jerome Powell, is dealing with the structural changes of America. How does a central bank deal with industrial failure, industrial breakup, global competition, and at the same time deal with the technological boom is seen in the excellence of GE Aviation? What is an economist to do? Right. Well, good morning. I mean, these are just one of the many questions that the Federal Reserve is puzzling over right now. I mean, frankly, I would put a lot more of it on consumer demand, but we do know that demand has been strong and we have heard multiple times about the production, particularly of goods, not making up for the demand we have. And basically anything that's bad news on that front, whether it's COVID or problems in the production sector, I mean, this is not good news. But if you step back and look at big picture, industrial production and a lot of the consumer goods spaces, it looks a lot better now yeah. than it did even months ago. This is not saying much, but, you know, we need anything moving in the right direction here. If, if, if corporations are clearing markets, including getting rid of the debris as General Electric is doing, do we assume consumer demand and the buoyant consumer demand is legitimate and sustainable? Yeah, so having worked on consumer demand for over a decade at the Federal Reserve, I know that the biggest thing driving demand is income in people's pockets. And we have seen, particularly from the federal government letting child tax credit expire, seeing millions of workers be out of work even five days like that a lot of families cannot make that work and they certainly aren't going to make it work and go out and buy big durable purchases that you know they can put off a little while so i think we've seen a lot and we'll see when we have the january numbers that's done more than a fed increase is going to do in terms of pulling the demand out Claudia, there is a conflation between fiscal and monetary policy often, and people look to monetary policy to do a lot of things that fiscal policy have done uh, years and years ago. I am wondering at this point, given the sense that you've long called for the Fed to be patient, you think that they're on track, they're not behind the curve, at what point do you see the inflation mandate becoming pressing and important for them to address at a time when it seems unclear what more they can do on the employment front? Right. So I know the narrative is really gloom and doom right now, but we got to step back. We had 
unemployment moved below 4% at the end of last year. Yes, we have had inflation, but we have inflation-adjusted consumer spending, business investment, you name it. This is not stagflation. And fiscal and monetary policy really push that. And that's, that is so important. It is absolutely appropriate. And we've seen this in messaging from Jay Powell and Lael Brainerd. We are so much closer on the maximum employment. And yeah, the thing that's you know not where we want it to be is inflation. So I don't think they've changed how they are um, valuing or kind of weighting the two. It's just we're a lot closer to the finish on employment, and that's a big deal for American families. Although participation rate has not gotten back up, and this is something that people are concerned about. And given that, and given that it may not recover to pre-pandemic levels, people are starting to worry about a wage spiral. How are you thinking about that? Yeah, so we have to remember the two things that push up on prices are supply and demand, right? And if consumers aren't out demanding, and Omicron's taken the winds out of some of the service sector, well, if the demand's not there from the consumers, well, it isn't there from the employers either. So I do think when we get the numbers for the fourth quarter, the good employment compensation index numbers, we're going to see some pretty big numbers in December. Unfortunately for the Fed, and this is for markets too, the information that we really need to understand where demand is going mm -hmm. is January. And we're not going to, we do not have You're that right, right now. Yeah, we're data dependent and waiting out for the data. Claudia, a lot of good analysis into this Fed meeting, and one of them is Kit Jukes, who's at Society General with decades of experience of linking in the dollar into other markets as well. Mr. Jukes this morning suggests that the Fed can slow demand. Can any central bank slow demand? Absolutely. I Again, I think the fiscal support income out of people's pockets, COVID is wreaking havoc, right? Like that is the big straightforward effect on demand. But the Fed does have an effect on the borrowing costs of consumers. Now, the 10-year Treasury is not moving in a way that's really helping them uh, push on those costs. But in a world without the Fed moving, right, like the Fed can make it more expensive and can take particularly all the durable goods, which can consumers often need to borrow to make it happen, yes, the Fed can bring demand, cool it off some. Uh, that's, mm -hmm. That is what's happening. <clears throat> it's sad because the real way to fix inflation, and Jay Powell said this, is to get us out of the pandemic. But I think, <clears throat> frankly, listening to right. President Biden last week, he, this is not going to happen. So the Fed is going to have to cool off demand. Claudia, an unfair question, and this goes to fancy mathematics, which gives us beautiful <laughs> curves that we never read in Michael Woodford's book on interest in <laughs> prices and their oiler functions. I don't want to go into it. What I do want to say, Claudia, is there's all sorts of lovely curves that get us back to an inflation rate. Where is your image of where that new inflation rate is? Is it 2%? Is it Adam Posen's 3% new inflation rate? Or is it a number that's higher but not frightening? Where, where, where does inflation settle out at on the glide path? Yeah, so first of all, I just say every single one of my forecasts about where inflation is headed, and this has been true now the entire pandemic, is when the pandemic moves into an endemic and we really have this under control, then when that happens, we're talking another six months of getting us back to something that's really close to 2%. The longer this goes on, the harder, the more backup we have, the more things have gone haywire. But the fundamentals in the US economy are not 
notably worse, and that's a lot of the response last year, is just we have this other factor that is, until the pandemic is under control, we are going to see well above 2%. Claudia Sam. But not 7 Of the Change Family <laughs> Institute. I think we all hope it's not going to be 7 Claudia, thank you for joining us. Right now, and this is up Lisa Bramitz's wheelhouse, so I'm going to ask one question and get out of the way. Winnie Caesar joins us from uh, Credit Sites. Uh, she was with Wells Fargo for years, global head of credit strategy at Credit Sites. And what's absolutely fascinating here is the dynamics and the things we can learn from the credit market, and particularly high yield. There is this phrase, Winnie, yield to worst. We have yield to worsened out worser now. And as you say in your lovely research note, there's a point where you step in and buy the price for yields to come down or yield to worse to come down. Are, the, are we there at this moment? We are just about there. We had been telling investors that 5% yield to worst for high yield was the level that we thought was much more attractive. And we got there yesterday with the market volatility that we saw. Now, high yields off to a pretty rocky start to start the year. This is actually the worst January performance on record at this point, worse than 2016's commodity sell-off, worse than uh, 2008 as well. But we think at this point, given the amount of cash that still sits on the sidelines and the need to generate some income in this inflationary environment, 5% on high yield doesn't look too shabby. Let's take a step back and talk about the credit markets. This is an important functioning tool that the Federal Reserve looks at. They're not going to get that concerned about the stock market sell-off if you see the fixed income market, in particular credit, behaving. You talk about that 5% level for yield to worst, but if you look at credit spreads, the extra premium that investors charge over benchmark rates, it stayed incredibly tame for the riskiest securities. What's the message that you get from that? The message that we get from that is that investors should continue to expect a very low default environment this year. Nobody has expected economic growth to really roll over quite yet. And with that, borrowing conditions in the credit markets have remained pretty favorable to issuers, which means that companies are going to continue to enjoy access to liquidity at levels that are still very attractive relative to historic norms, despite the fact that we've seen yields move higher overall. So the price action that we've seen in the credit markets has been much more collateral damage from equity and rates volatility rather than the credit markets sending a signal that liquidity is really drying up across the financial markets. And we view that as generally constructive. So, Winnie, fast forward and talk about what this means two years from now, three years from now, as rates are expected to continue to rise and become more normal, whatever that means. At what point does that become a serious problem given the trillion dollars of corporate debt that have been issued over the past couple of years? So there is a point where we'll reach this kind of tipping point where borrowing costs very much exceed what issuers can ultimately pay, especially as you point out, debt loads have increased pretty significantly. We're still a far cry away from that. With investment grade yielding about 2.7%, we're still 100 basis points below the average coupon on the index, and that average coupon is at all-time lows. Right. 
So you still have at least 100 basis points just to get back to that average level. And so long as we keep growth, you know, good enough for credit, as we like to say, then issuers should be able to continue to operate pretty nicely. Well, I saw a blurb the other day. I, I didn't even read the whole thing, folks. It was just in the blur of the moment where it was trying to calculate how much of a debt deal Microsoft could do. Now, Microsoft is the antithesis of your world. I believe they're AAA. They're as far from high yield as you can get. When you hear the ability of any company in your world or in the, the technology world to raise $10, $20, 30000000000 billion, how do you respond to that size of number? Well, those sizes of numbers have actually become much more normal to investors over the past few years, where we've seen more and more jumbo deals, both in the investment grade markets and also in leveraged finance. As high yield and leveraged loans have grown, issuers have a lot of avenues to raise very large uh, tranches. I'd also like to point out there, there is still an awful lot of cash on corporate balance sheets that needs to be used for something. And companies like Microsoft and other very highly rated technology companies are some of the issuers that have the most cash balances. So I'd be a little bit less focused on the size of kind of jumbo transactions that can get pushed through in the investment grade market, whereas the high yield and leveraged loan market are really primed for these massive LBO type issuances over the course of this year. Interesting. Winnie, thank you. An important part of the cross-asset story with Winnie Caesar of Credit Size. What do you do against a reported 100,000 troops of Russia? We go to Alex Bordeaux, who gave us a lot of smarts early in the year with the Eurasia Group. Risks for the year. We're thrilled he could visit with us again on his expertise of Russia and Ukraine. Alex, I am thunderstruck at the granularity of Eastern troops, think Vladivostok, taking the Trans-Siberian Railway all the way over to Belarus. You don't do that unless it's for a reason. Why does Mr. Putin have Eastern troops in Belarus threatening Kiev? Well, we have seen uh, other signs of that happening as well over the last few months. Uh, troops coming from Siberia is another example of this. And it does point to a buildup on the Russia-Ukraine border. Uh, we now have some of these troops heading to Belarus for these military exercises. And I think that is another part of the pressure that's being put not just on the Ukrainians, but also on NATO and the U.S. Uh, to uh, come to some terms uh, on demands that the Russians made back in December uh, to uh, that they want a ban on Ukraine's membership in NATO. They want other uh, concessions coming from NATO in terms of troop uh, deployments in Eastern Europe. This is you know, not just about Ukraine. It's also about uh, the threat that Putin perceives coming from the U.S. Uh, and NATO on Russia's western border. Is the threat cultural? Is it the westernization of the Ukraine? I think that Ukraine's turn to the West, particularly its turn to Europe uh, economically and then to Europe and the U.S. on the security front is of concern to the Kremlin. Historically, uh, Ukraine had been very close, obviously, not just, I mean, when we're talking post-independence, there had been very close relationships uh, between Ukraine and Russia. And after 2014, in, in particular, uh, we saw that really decline. It is, in many ways, a very different relationship now because of the conflict of the last eight years, because of economic changes in terms of Ukraine's orientation. 
Uh, Putin has been pushing against that over the last several months and sees that as a problem. But I think the security issues uh, really have come up in the last couple of months as being the priority uh, for the Kremlin and the thing that they want the U.S. and NATO to make concessions on. Alex, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but if you could game out what you think is likely to happen over the next few weeks, what would you say? Well, I, I do think that diplomacy has uh, a real chance here. In fact, we think that it probably will, in the end, uh, lead to uh, some level of de-escalation in the coming months. But this is going to be a real challenge, seeing all of the escalation and, and, and posturing that we've seen just in the last 10 days or so after the first round of talks uh, really did not go well uh, between uh, Russia and the West. But there are still areas uh, where uh, Russia and the U.S. in particular can have discussions, including on these issues uh, of NATO's presence uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, including issues like missile deployments, uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, there's a whole host of things that uh, Putin wants to talk about, particularly he wants to talk about them with uh, President Biden and things that, that a deal could be struck. So there is this room for progress uh, over the next several weeks, but it is going to be slow going and it is going to be hurt to a certain degree by the escalations that we've seen over the last few days. Alex, how concerning is it from your perspective that China and Russia are increasingly teaming up at a time when the U.S. is trying to regain its status with the European Union as the alliance? Well, I, I think that it is a concern, certainly, for Washington to see uh, sort of this, this close relationship. Uh, you know, I would say that the Russia-China relationship, it's gotten better over the last several years on a number of fronts, particularly economic, but now increasingly on the security side. I think it's unlikely that we're going to see you know, a formal strategic alliance where one of them comes to the defense of the other uh, in the case of a major conflict, but they will give each other a certain level uh, of support. Uh, and in this particular case, I think you know, the, the, the Russians in particular have been uh, sort of, uh, they, they've appreciated the fact that uh, the Chinese government uh, has sort of given a nod towards uh, some of the Russia's security concerns when it comes uh, to the U.S. and NATO. Got to leave it there, Alex. Thank you, sir. As always, Alex Bredow there of Eurasia. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.